Welcome to another brand new episode of Living in Flight, your go-to podcast for everything in the world of aviation. Exclusive interview conversations with industry professionals and enthusiasts. Strap on your seatbelt, put on your headset, and get ready for Living in Flight. We have got a great conversation lined up for today's episode of Living in Flight. My guest is the one and only, the Minnesota Aviation Hall of Famer, the designated pilot examiner extraordinaire, master pilot, and dear friend to many, Brian Addis. That was Thank a you. lot. That's a great introduction. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Brian, I'm honored to have this opportunity to carve time out of your busy life for a conversation. My pleasure. Happy to be with you today. Yeah. It's a rare chance to sit down and chat with someone who is as experienced and accomplished in life as you are. So- Thank you for joining me. And as old. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to say it like that. <laughs> All right. I'll start off just by saying that um, I've spent uh, a long time and given a lot of thought to the kinds of questions that I want to ask you today. Mm -hmm. After all, you have spent many years as a person asking the questions. So now I get a chance to turn the tables on you. Good. And uh, I'm thrilled about it. Yes. Uh, let's jump on in by mm -hmm. gaining some familiarity with uh, the highlight reel of your life accomplishments. Sure. We're less than two minutes into this show and I don't want any of our listeners to lose interest. So we need to hook them in. Okay. To date, how many check rides have you administered on behalf of the FAA as a DPE? Uh, about 13,000. About 13,000? Yes. Do we have your attention? 13,000 <laughs> check rides. There's gonna be some good material here. And I believe the 1970s, you purchased and operated a flight school in St. Paul, Minnesota called Wings Incorporated. During Wings Incorporated's best years, how many instructors did it employ? Um, in 1977, myself and Skip Sanborn, a uh, partner, we took uh, possession of through a purchase of Wings Incorporated in late 77. And, uh, um, and, and through those years, and finally closed it in 2007. Uh, we had 430, 440 flight instructors uh, through all those years, and we did over 15,000 certificates and ratings. Wow. And how many airplanes did the flight school have? Uh, over the years, several hundred. I don't, I don't remember. We, we, uh, in our busiest times, we had 25 airplanes. And our leanest years were probably 12 or 13 airplanes. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Now, the FAA calls you a master pilot. Does that title mean anything significant to you? Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not real into titles. I'm not real into uh, uh, self-acclaim and self-actualization. Yep. And, and I'm just... Uh, I get up in the morning, I go to work, and <laughs> go home at night, and that's it. Right, right. I can identify with that. Yes, I can identify with that. But the uh, the definition of master pilot, to, according to the FAA, is 50 years of accident-free flying. So, hey, yes. <laughs> you made yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your education background. Sure. Uh, psychology, right? Uh, psychology. I was a psychology major uh, in all of my education, and I've been in and out of colleges for as a, as a matter of fact, uh, 
Uh, I'm I'm 78 years old. I only paid off my student loans about 10 years ago. So I've been in and out of colleges almost all my life. I'm always taking classes. Um, and uh, uh, but uh, my background in uh, in education is uh, I started at the University of Minnesota uh, for back in the days when uh, you didn't have to if you wanted to go to the University of Minnesota in the 1960s, you walked over to enrollment general college and, and wrote a check and you were in. It wasn't a matter of uh, it wasn't a matter of uh, of application and acceptance. Just a down payment type of thing. Well, it was in those days. It was uh, unless you're accepted to one of the other colleges. And again, the the definition of a university is it's a grouping of colleges. If you were in if you were in one of the other colleges within the university, you were accepted. But if you weren't, you everybody went in general college, GC. And uh, in the nineteen early nineteen eighties, they did discontinued the general college, but I started there in pre-med. And in those days, um, uh, every pre-med student would take classes, and if they weren't going to get an A, they'd drop it and start over again. Well, I didn't want to do that, and I couldn't afford to do that, so I kept going. We're talking about days when credits were $36, $26 a credit, uh, and now they're... (laughs) And Not many, that many many times more than that. Yes. Um, so I I changed my major and just evolved towards psychology, and from there went to University of North Carolina, and from there went to the University of the State of New York, and uh, continued to major in psychology, undergraduate and graduate program at University of North Carolina at University of the State of New York. Uh, in New York, the state has a little different way of of uh, the, defining their college system in those days. Uh, in those days, and I don't know if it's true to this day, but uh, in Minnesota, we have a University of Minnesota, and then we have a state, Minnesota State College system. Yeah. Well, in, in New York, they have the University of New York, just as we do, and then they have NYU, which is New York University. That's on Manhattan Island. And they have uh, New York State, and then they have the University of the State of New York, which is Excelsior College. So it's terribly confusing. Yeah, you've kind of lost me already. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even know which system you're in. Right, right. Um, so it's a little unusual. Little, uh, uh, but uh, uh, how the two careers have tied together, and they've tied together nicely, uh, all my life is uh, through the the onset of the human factors in aviation and my uh, dedication to ed- education and aviation education. So I've always yeah. done both. I've always worked in both. I've always studied both. I've always taught both. Yep. And uh, I taught at Inver Hills Community College for thirty years. Yeah, and we're gonna get into we're gonna yeah, get into yeah, all of that. I've got bit, I've got so much material here. I'm gonna ask you about. Sure. Yeah. That, so okay, great. So you really sunk your teeth into psychology right. from the it's onset. It's the overview of right. It's human behavior. Yep. And not and on the non-clinical side, and that is, if you if you think about uh, psychology and you look at a textbook that says aviation psychology. Uh, there is no such thing yeah. in, in the in the world of psychology. There is no such thing. There's clinical, educational, and industrial. 
and my side was the industrial side. Okay. And, uh, I suppose that's the closest thing. That's the closest thing to human factors. Yes. And uh, so if you ask me questions on the clinical side, like, why am I crazy? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And I'll never be able Figure to know. Figure it out for yourself. I've never taken anything other than elementary classes gotcha. on those subjects. Gotcha. Oh, that's great. That is great. Okay. Uh, enough about accomplishments mm-hmm. for now. We'll talk more about the topic later on. Sure. Uh, let's quickly chat about what you've been up to lately. Are you still flying at all? I am. Um, I uh, uh, Two years ago, actually three years ago now, I retired from Whip Air. When I left, when I closed Wings in 2007, I went over there to work for a while, and I thought, oh, I'll stay here for a year or two as a test pilot for uh, their production. And uh, uh, it turned into 14 years. Um, and... Uh, I worked, uh, and I continued to work as a DPE. Well, I retired from Whippear three years ago and from a DPE two years ago and decided uh, I I do not want to sit around and do nothing. I do not want to work at Walmart, Kmart, or uh, and I I couldn't go back to teaching in classrooms because uh, I'm a retired teacher uh, with... Minnesota uh, or Minsky, the uh, uh, state college system. Right. And uh, I could, but you can only make so much money, and then you, they start taking away your money. Yeah. And I uh, thought, no, nah, I, I, I think I've done that. That's enough of that. And uh, Right. So I want to go back to my roots, and I went back to my roots as being a flight instructor. And so what I'm doing now is uh, primary instruction, private commercial instrument, CFIs, and... Uh, um, and uh, Caravan, Kodiak, and King are recurrency. Okay. And what has occurred uh, in uh, the last few years is uh, some King Air pilots who uh, are insured, or all of them are insured, but uh, the King Air pilot, uh, the, their insurance companies will say you have to go through recurrent training every year. And some are are uh, liberal enough to say, well, you have to go through a simulator recurrent type of program uh, approved on our list every other year, and in the off year, you can go find a a recurrent uh, person. Some schmuck. Some schmuck, right? (laughs) And uh, here's a list of people. And so I'm kind of on that list. The list of schmucks. as well, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Nice. Okay. So that's what you've been up to lately. That's what I've been up to lately. But rather than working 70 hours a week, I'm working about 70 hours a month. So it's okay. quite yeah. a bit less. Yeah, I've slowed down just a little bit. Right. But yes. But still, I know that you're a, you're a busy guy. Mm-hmm. So are you doing any safety seminars still? With no, I retired from that too. You did? Yes. Okay. I, I turned that over to... Um, uh, over to... Uh, uh, Sarah Weedler and uh, uh, I had a nice conversation with her. She's an insurance agent uh, over here at uh, Wings Insurance. And, okay. Uh, she's. I said, and she's in a, a graduate safety program, aviation safety program. I said, do you want to take my reins for this? And so I gave her all of my literature and everything I have on safety seminars. And I said, I'm old, you're young. Go to it. Right. <laughs> and, uh, there you go. And so uh, I, I I don't know if she's doing 
seminars or not. But the other side of this is against against the backdrop of being a psychologist. There's something that I know uh, that others don't think of. The older one gets, the less likely it is for younger people to listen to an older person. And this is innate. This is ingrained in us. We are we are less uh, less uh, receptive to having a 96-year-old stand in front of us telling us things. Um, for some reason, uh, the, 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 there seems to be less validity to the 42-year-old listening to an old, old person. So at some point, you have to, you have to uh, 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 turn, uh, turn the page. And, uh, sure. And Hand a, good, a good example of that is one of my, uh, my mentors and heroes in life is Michael Gazanik. He's a neuroscience uh, psychologist. He's now deep into his 80s. And uh, you can see him on, uh, go on YouTube and, and see him, but then down in the corner, look at how many uh, visits he gets from others, and it's a handful. And then type in the science girl, who's a 27-year-old PhD, he's very smart, very sharp, but she's a 27-year-old, and she has millions of visits. Uh-huh. So uh, people are more likely to listen to young people than they are to old people. Which is interesting, because experience is what uh, is where knowledge is derived. I mean, it is. It's at least but, a part of it. It is, but uh, uh, there's something in us, in our... Uh, in, in our DNA, in, in our, our hardwiring. In our hardwiring hard that says once a person uh, reaches a certain age... Uh, they are less valid. Uh, I feel like that's different among different cultures, right. too. And there's an old saying, uh, which is a sad saying, author unknown. I don't know where this came from, but I, I love the saying. When an old man dies, a library burns. And there's so much truth to that. Yep. Uh, that is that is sad, but that is it good. It is sad, but it's good, yes. And yeah. uh, um, it's... Uh, uh, it's uh, it's it's just more interesting to listen for young people to listen to young people because they can be closer can, to identify with them. Right, easier to relate. Yes. Sure. Mm-hmm. So where do you spend most of your time these days? Uh, where I spend most of my time... Um, Bouncing all is, over, right? There, yeah, there's no average. I have no average day. Okay. No average time I get up, no average time I go to sleep, no average... Every day is a different day. Sounds like me with a new baby in the house. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, the, the baby. I don't know when I'm waking up. <laughs> runs, the, the baby runs your life. Yeah, you don't that's run right. hers or his. So. Okay. Um, let's time travel now. Okay. This device sitting in front of us, mm-hmm. it's our time machine. Okay. And it's the sole intellectual property of yours truly. So grab onto my hand mm-hmm. and uh, this might hurt a little. No, I'm just kidding. We're still, we're still working out the kinks on yeah. this thing. Uh, but seriously, mm-hmm. if you're comfortable, yes. take us back to where you grew up as a child and where you spent your formative years. Okay. Um, most of it's, uh, most of it's Minnesota, but again, uh, with my start, it was, my father was uh, a mechanical engineer and a family of a Colorado uh, rancher. And my mother was uh, a Wisconsin girl, family of uh, Wisconsin farmers. Um, and my father came here to work for a company by the name of American Hoist. In those days, it was American Hoist and Derrick. 
and they have since moved and gone to uh, the Carolinas, one of the Carolinas, I don't remember where, and changed their name. And uh, um, the, the uh, uh, they changed their name because they did a lot of oil work in the Middle East, and okay. it's uh, in the Middle East. And I've worked over there too. It, if you're a company working in the Middle East, no one likes the word American in your name, so you have to change your name to something. Interesting. Uh, so they changed their name to Amhoist. In any case, he was an engineer, mechanical engineer for them. He was a graduate of the Colorado School of Mines, but he came here to work for them. And uh, in the process, uh, he traveled around a lot. And the reason he traveled is because when American Hoist builds a large piece of machinery, they build it in their own uh, in their own uh, yard in, on the Mississippi River in those days, down in St. Paul under Robert Street Bridge. And uh, uh, when they're done, done building a crane or whatever it is, large piece of equipment, now it's going to be shipped someplace. Well, uh, to ship it, you have to tear it down and put it on a train and then take it someplace and ship it. And you don't see many fully erected cranes just no, being transported from place to place. <laughs> so his job was as an inspector, engineer inspector, he'd follow the crane wherever it would go. And uh, so that left us in the Brooklyn Navy Yards, Brooklyn, New York, and uh, Houston, Houston, Texas, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and here. And so my mother would chase him around the country, and finally she decided, I'm going to stay in one place, and uh, you can come home when you want, do, you can go to work when you want. And he spent his whole life doing just that, going to various places and uh, always coming home. Um and uh, so uh, I spent most of my youth uh, from eight years old, nine years old, ten years old, so, somewhere in there uh, in Minnesota. Oh, very good. Mm -hmm. So you were born in 1945, right? The 1945, year world, yes, sir. The year World War II ended. Yeah. What was life like for you? 28 days after, after Hitler killed himself. Wild. Yes. <laughs> what was and life like for you I as a kid? When I tell people that, they, they uh, when I tell young people that, they... They're taken back by this because they'll put Hitler in the same era as Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> That's uh, a gross misunderstanding of <laughs> yes. historical context. That's super funny. Mm -hmm. We have to remember that it's only been four generations back to when we weren't a country, 1776. Yeah. So. Still a new experiment, mm -hmm. isn't it? And if you take people that are my age and uh, – you ask where did their grandparents come from? Almost everyone my age, grandparents came from a different country. So, so what was life like for you, kind of as a kid in that in that time? It was average, standard, middle class, nineteen uh, fifties growing up, Minnesota. Uh, yep. You couldn't be a more average kid than I was. Sure. Uh, my uh, my mother had three children because she wanted two. In those days, this is this will sound strange to you, but it doesn't to an 80-year-old. Uh, in those days, and in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s, doctors would say to women, if you want two children, have three, because one is going to die. And uh, nowadays, we that's we, unheard of. Yeah, exactly. Babies don't die. Um, but in those days, they did. Yep. And if I look at my, my parents, uh, my 
my uh, mother, my mother's family had uh, they had seven children and two of them died. My father's family had seven children, two of them died. Yeah, so, so there you go. That was normal. Yeah. Right. Approximately, which years were you a high schooler? I was a high schooler from nineteen. Uh, let me see. I was born in forty-five, and uh, in those days, I went through uh, a grade school. Grade school is age or grade one through six, and uh, then the high school was contained in a middle school, which was grades seven through twelve. So I graduated in 1963, and you have to back that number up by seven years. To, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that sounds about right. Mm -hmm. um, just to kind of give some context to the this time period, you know, do what, what was going on in the world or the country at well, that time the, that maybe the, people the, know about. The, what was the, the biggest things that were going on in the world was uh, our change in how we uh, looked at racial discrimination uh, and, uh, and uh, the space race. Um, our uh, our Cold War, the Cold War, and our race with uh, with Russia in getting things into uh, into orbit around the around this planet. Yeah. So. Very good. And uh, jet engines. Yeah, the jet age mm -hmm. was kind of just coming right. into uh, into being. Yep. yep. And the airline industry was just coming into what we would call the model that we have now. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay, so now we kind of know at least what was going on during mm -hmm. this time. Um, do you think that you were a good student during the time you spent in high school? I ask this because if someone were to ask mm -hmm. me, I would say that I certainly was not, and I exist I today as somebody who was a terrible student. I was awesome. A, okay, I was a, I was a straight A student <laughs> from grades kindergarten through six. Same. I never got any any grade other than A. Okay. From grades uh, seven through twelve, I was a straight C student. Nice. <laughs> I did, I was terrible. I was an awful student. Uh, I uh, I was interested in cars and girls and uh, and uh, and nothing in high school interested me. Uh, it was it was difficult I, for a learning experience. I would find myself in libraries learning what I wanted to learn. Yeah. Not necessarily in the classroom. Not necessarily so. what the. Uh what the what school the curriculum model, had right. for you, that this exactly. is what you will learn. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of work did you do before attending college? Uh, the, uh, strangely, uh, I, there was a bakery that, that uh, uh, was maybe three blocks away from where I lived, and uh, I got a job there cleaning, cleaning up. And uh, they trained me, uh, piece by piece, time by time, a little bit at a time, uh, until I became a journeyman baker. I was the youngest journeyman baker at age 16. And I would go to work at midnight and get done at 7 in the morning and then go to high school. And uh, Journeyman baker. At, yes, at age 16. <laughs> and uh, does, this, does this mean you were an apprentice at some point? Doing that, uh, I was, is, an, or is that I part was of an it? apprentice from age thirteen to age sixteen. Okay, so, um, but uh, uh, but it was it was interesting because I made almost the same amount of money as my father. <laughs> and and, uh, and did he know that? Yes, everyone knew that. Okay, and uh, new cars and yeah, so nice. I didn't have any trouble spending the money either. 
Sure. <laughs> classic, uh, classic after high school right. years. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And um, I, I learned. I started learning how to fly when I was sixteen as a curiosity. As a curiosity, I had, okay. I had no intention, no desire to do it for a living. Sure, you just went to the local flight school and took a lesson. Local flight school and took a lesson. Interesting. Any military service? Um, yes, I was in the army for two years. Uh, I was a drafted uh, Vietnam infantry soldier, um, nineteen sixty-eight to seventy. Sixty-eight to seventy. And you said that you were about 16 when you took your first airplane ride? Yes. Mm -hmm. And now after that first airplane ride, is that when you developed this budding interest that developed into a lifelong pursuit? Uh, yes. And it was more uh, what, what, what captured me was the curiosity, uh, the science, the physics of aviation and aeronautics. Sure. And, uh, uh, and it wasn't so much the joy of flight as it was the curiosity. The supporting mechanics it, that right, made flight how does possible. This work? Why does this work and yeah. what is this? Uh, and it was that, that curiosity that, that led me down this path. So Very interesting. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, learning or doing two career, uh, two learning career experiences at the same time. Uh, education, mm -hmm. sure. education, and psychology education, and uh, and uh, aviation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. For this next part of the discussion, I want to talk about your flight experience. Sure. Uh, I think there's a lot that aspiring aviators might learn from hearing about just the sheer variety of experience uh, mm -hmm. that you've accumulated over the years. Yes. Well, let's get into that. Okay. Uh, thinking back to your private through commercial certificates, what mm -hmm. kinds of airplanes were you flying back then? In those days, uh, I learned how to fly in, well, the early airplanes were Luscombs and Taylor Crafts and things like that. Uh -huh. um, and then uh, I, I hooked up with a flight school at Flying Cloud Airport uh, by the name of Nelson Ryan. In those days, they had 172, 7172s. So I, I uh, had a very good flight instructor there, and he brought me to to the end and uh, got a private pilot certificate in 38 hours. That is fantastic. So yes. you worked with one flight instructor the whole way through. Uh, I worked with one flight instructor. No, uh, actually, when I started, I had worked with several flight instructors in the tailwheel airplanes. Mm -hmm. uh, but then once I went to the flight school, I had one flight instructor the whole way through, right? Yes. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. That's kind of rare nowadays. It is, isn't it? I think there's yeah. a lot of turnover in the industry. Well, it is, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> all the time I had a flight school, when I would flight test people, typically speaking, each, each student would, uh, the private pilot students, each one would have had four or five flight instructors. Yep. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. That's a lot of different signatures in yes, that logbook. <laughs> right, yes. And there's goods and bads out of that. They're right. The, yep. the, the goods, of course, are uh, I, I get a diversity of, of uh, points of view and training. And the bad is he told me this and you tell me that. So. Yeah, yeah. Kind mm -hmm. of uh, one of those aspects that make that creates a lot of the shades of gray in aviation, yeah, exactly. as you hear a lot of different things from a lot of different people, because right. we all have opinions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, was the progression of flight training when you were going through it similar to today? Uh, it it was. Uh, overall, the uh, progression was private. Uh, actually, in those days, it was private, commercial, and then you got your instrument rating. 
and uh, and the the pilot certificate that you got in those days uh, was a commercial pilot airplane single engine land and then it had no uh, restriction if you didn't have an instrument rating because it was normal to have a commercial without an instrument rating instrument rating was right. kind of interesting in the 1960s if you had one as a as a general aviation pilot yeah it was um, like sprinkles on the sunday type of thing right yes um but uh but that was a normal progression it was private commercial, commercial. and instrument right? yep And remind us again, where, where did you accomplish the bulk of your flight training? What was the name of the school at Flying Cloud? Uh, well, it was, uh, the, 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 the private was, uh, uh, was uh, Nelson Ryan. Okay. But then my commercial instrument was a scattering of lots of different flight schools and different experiences. Uh, in, in the industry, we call that kind of a person a mutt. A mutt, yeah. Uh, someone who comes through the system without being... Uh, in, indoctrinated in only one educational philosophy. Sure. And there's goods and bads. Goods and that. bads with that, right. I imagine. Yes. Okay. okay. Let's talk about your first flying job. What did you do and what kind of aircraft were you flying at the time? Uh, first flying job was freight in a Cessna 206. And, uh, um, it was a manufacturing company that uh, um, I won't say the name, uh, Minneapolis company, because they had a number of problems that I don't want. You don't want to get into. I don't want to divulge. Yep. Uh, they weren't my problems, but uh, yeah. Um, but it was uh, in those days. It wasn't a. It wasn't a, a freight forwarder, a freight company. It was an, actually a manufacturer with contracts uh, to build parts for other places. And I would go primarily in the 206 uh, to uh, Illinois, Indi in places in Illinois, Indiana, and uh, Wisconsin, uh, Iowa. So staying pretty first, regional. Right, my first line job. Okay. And I had that as a commercial uh, and, and uh, pretty fresh instrument rating, so. As a matter of fact, I had that before I was a flight instructor. So I started as a flight instructor with over a thousand hours. Okay, and in those, thousand hours of flying, of flying, flying uh, freight, freight around, and, and all kinds of. Right. I, I would guess bad weather conditions. Well, and being it, in the Midwest, <laughs> it, 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 here's an example of that. Uh, our, our philosophy, or ethos, if you will, when we'd come in at night, the pilots. Uh, we get ready to go, and uh, every once in a while, somebody would say, did you check the weather? And uh, uh, another person would say, what for? We have to go anyway. <laughs> go anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Just deal with whatever comes your right. way when you get there, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> That's funny. Um, in but, Hartford, Connecticut, you were in Hartford, Connecticut for Hartford, a while. New Haven, Connecticut, uh, Long Island, Islip. And this was kind um, of like in the 70s, two, I believe? In the 70s, right. That was... Uh, after I was a flight instructor here, I worked at Wings Incorporated as a flight instructor for a couple of years and then went out there and worked with uh, various, um, well, I, I, I don't if you call them um, uh, or not uh, management companies, basically management yeah. companies that manage airplanes, right? So For charter certificates? 
there were charters. Some were 135, uh, some were not. They were just part 91. Okay. Uh, um, management companies. Yeah. There's a few of those in the Twin Cities here, too. Yep. Minnesota Jet is one of them. Yep. And uh, what kind of aircraft were you flying out there? In those days, it was uh, Cessna 400 series, 421s, 414s, 402s, King Airs, MU2s, those kinds of airplanes. What's a Cessna 400 series look like? Um, If In those days, if you imagine a Cessna 310 with the tip tanks. Yep. Just expand the fuselage, make the, and uh, put a little bigger engine. Put not the four seventy engine, but the five twenty engine on it. Continental five twenty. Uh-huh. Um, that's what it was, and then it was a cabin class. So, how many passengers? Uh, eight. Usually eight. Okay. Eight, eight total people. Nice. Usually. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. If you take a look at Cape Air. Yeah. Yeah, they have four hundred twos. I don't know if they still do. I don't know what they run now. Yeah, I think I think they still might have them in their fleet, but like I haven't looked at them in, in quite a while, so I'm not really sure what they're what they're flying these days. Right. Um, and Mitsubishi's and King Airs as well. MU2s and King Airs. Yeah. Okay. Did you like the MU2? No. Okay. <laughs> what about it? Didn't you like? Well, uh, it, it's a funny. I mean, it's kind of a neat looking airplane. Yeah, it's. it's <laughs> I, I guess it isn't all that bad. It's just not. It just. Uh, it didn't have the stable characteristics that. Uh, that Beechcraft and Cessna have, so. Okay, I understand. What was your first jet type rating? First jet type rating was a Cessna 500. Citation. And where did you do that? Um, I did that in Texas. I think I did, I can't remember the name of the school, but this has been so long ago. Yeah. One one thing about getting old, you forget. Right. Details fade right. into the mist. I mean, hey, I'm only 30, and that's that already happens to me <laughs> in certain right. instances. Yeah. <laughs> but <So. laughs> uh, uh, that, and then I flew citations uh, um, contract for a while uh, in when I was here in Minnesota. So let's talk about with regard to the first jet type rating. Mm-hmm. From what you do remember, making that transition into jet aircraft, is there anything you remember about? Like anything the, you might have struggled with? I, the one thing I remember more than anything is um, the jet engine is actually easier to manage and easier to deal with than uh, these uh, propeller-driven piston airplanes because you're managing so many different things with a piston-driven airplane with controllable pitch propellers. Um and that my first thought was, well, this is, you push the power in and it goes and you pull it out and it doesn't go. You don't have to worry about yeah. much of anything. Uh, of course, uh, that takes us into a different realm. And the realm is one of speed. And then you have to manage speed. Whereas with the piston airplanes, you're not managing speed or worrying about speed that much. Right, right. Speed I think that kind of is one of the fundamental differences. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that I struggled with uh, with my first jet type rating is... It's just is those differences, and, and right. it's a just different way to manage speed. Manage than speed and time, right? Yeah, because everything is going fast. Everything. Yep. So, so through the uh, all the years of flight experience, all the variety of flight mm-hmm. experience, ever experienced an in-flight emergency worth telling a story about, um, or anything close to an emergency? Well, I'm, I'm trying to think. Uh, three engine failures. Okay, I'd say that then, is within uh, the category. And then uh, as a flight instructor, maybe 
at least a, another half a dozen that were engine failures where we, in, in training or in testing, where you have to shut the engine down and it doesn't restart. Well, you just made the emergency. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, three engine failures. Uh, yeah, one was when I was a kid in a Cessna 210. Uh, and I learned something from this because the checklist says in said in this airplane, as it does at many, before landing, select fullest tank. Well, I turned to fullest tank and the engine quit. I dropped the gear, turned base, I dropped the or I turned final, dropped the flaps, landed on the runway, power off 180. And uh, as soon as I touched down, the engine started running, running again. again. Nice. And no one ever figured out what had happened. Huh. Um, and uh, but it, it taught me a lesson. If the engine's running, why are you changing the fuel tanks? And I understand the concept. The concept, of course, is I'm changing the fullest tank in the event that the landing doesn't work out, uh, that I'm not running out of fuel too in the process of fixing a problem, whatever the problem might be. Yeah, basically precluding right. further problems. Exactly. So, um, but if you don't expect a problem, why are you changing a tank when it's running, when the airplane's running? Yeah. So it was a good lesson. I think uh, one of the first mistakes I made on one of my, maybe my, was my third flight, is I grabbed the mixture thinking it was the throttle. That's a classic. <laughs> Everybody does that, I think. Yeah, or right. maybe I'm just the only idiot out there. Yeah. <laughs> and, but as soon as I heard what the engine was doing, I went, oh, whoops. Yeah. And the flight instructor, I remember he looked at me, he's like, a very good thing in aviation. If you do something and you don't like the result, put it back. Put it back. <laughs> put right. it back. <laughs> and the other one is uh, the, uh, actually, th uh, this, the other one was... Um, and I, I guess there's five engine failures. The other one was uh, with a uh, Cessna 310. Um, on rotation, the engine quit. And uh, I was able just to uh, instinctively, before I even thought about it, and this is where training comes in, uh, abort. Even the nose, the nose gear's in the air. The mains are just, just off. It couldn't have been 20 feet in the sky. And the engine spools back, power back, touchdown, land, taxi back again. And what they found there was the fuel selector, uh, the fuel selector was packed with ice. So no matter how many times you drained the tanks, there was no, no way you could get the ice out of it. Yeah. And the third one was a Skymaster 337, where, again, as a kid, I didn't understand the concept of bootstrapping, but... Uh, the rear engine just started to spool down, and all I would have had to do is increase the propeller on the rear engine to increase demand to, in, to make the turbocharger continue to do its job at 14,000 feet. And, uh, but I didn't, and it spooled down, and I just said, well, okay, it's going to spool down. I'll let it shut down. I'll shut it down. Something, yep. something bad. Yep. And uh, the fourth one was... Uh, in a Gulf Stream, strangely enough, myself and uh, another pilot uh, uh, descend from 41,000 down to 28,000, power up at 28,000, nothing happens. One engine didn't come back up. Huh. And this is in a Gulf Stream. And I thought, well, this it's is weird. About the last thing you'd expect. <laughs> and uh, so we started going through the checklist and the drills, and all yeah, of a sudden the engine started coming back up again. So it, 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 the, the, the thing about uh, these problems that you have in large airplanes, 
Nothing ever happens the way it happens in a simulator. Nope. <laughs> Never. Never. Um, but in any case, we landed. We were in, I think, going from D.C. to Dallas. And uh, we did all the tests on the airplane. Couldn't find anything wrong. Uh, talked to all the mechanics, all the maintenance people. Nope, no problem. Can't find anything. Bring it home. So we went home uh, and, and didn't have the problem at all. While they went into the engine, they found the VMU sleeve was sticking. And the VMU sleeve, which I never knew what it was in that Rolls-Royce engine, uh, is a slide method where the fuel comes out of the out of imagine a tube that has a hole or not a hole but a slit in the side, and that's how the fuel gets into that engine. Well, that sleeve was sticking, and uh, that was interesting. And that was that. So fuel just stopped going into the burner can. Fuel stopped going into the burner can, right? Huh. And uh, uh, but it just, uh, but it was one of those things where, okay, now it's stuck. Now it's not unstuck. So right, it's intermittent. The word, the worst, the word in the world in aviation is intermittent. Intermittent, yeah. And the other Gulf Stream was uh, lost an engine on takeoff. G two right engine failed, kind of ate itself. Okay. And, uh, it so never components did, of the turbine right, blew yeah. through the rest of and the. It didn't, it, blew, didn't, it didn't cause that much damage, but okay. It, by the time they got done with it, the engine was toast. So Engine no spin? No. Yeah, that's the worst. But when you think about it, these uh, uh, jet engine airplanes aren't supposed to have these kinds of problems. They, they, no. You're supposed to live your whole career without ever having an engine failure. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's kind of interesting that yeah, uh, right. <laughs> you've got at least two. <laughs> yeah, two. <laughs> That's enough. Too. That's enough. I'd say it's more right. than enough. I think you've had your fair share. Yes. <laughs> um, so speaking of Gulf Streams, uh, let's mm -hmm. talk at least a little bit about the the Gulf Streams that you flew. Sure. Because um, I have Gulf Stream experience myself in yep. G4s, out, yep. fives. You have four and five. And, and I, the 550, yeah. Right. And I started out as co-pilot in G1, 1159, or, uh, or 159. And a classic and, G1. And uh, a classic, classic Gulf Stream. And then from there to G2, and then from there to G3, and from there, the company actually bought a G4. But when I, I at the same time they bought a G4, or they bought a G5, and then it went, so it went G1, G2, G3, G5, and then they bought a G4. And at the time they were, they're getting rid of pilots. Well, I was a senior pilot, and I, and I said, look, I have two other jobs. I teach in the college. And I have a flight school, so if you have to get rid of pilots, get rid of me. And uh, they did. <laughs> <laughs> I took you up on that. Right, they took me up on that. Offer. But then they called me back in a year. So. Oh, okay. Uh, so. So what was the uh, what was the company? It was Hubbard Broadcasting. Hubbard Broadcasting. Yeah. So what Wonder, did they do? Absolutely wonderful place. They uh, they own several television and radio stations all over the world. So. Which makes sense that they would have a fleet of Gulf Streams. Yeah, if they're all Gulf over streams, the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, and how many years of experience on Gulf Streams do you have? Um, I think if you had to put it all together, maybe eighteen, a little less, seventeen. Yeah, it's a little bit more than my three years. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, I mean, I'd have to guess there was some international experience yes, on the G three right. specifically. Yeah, I used to joke with the chief pilot, great guy, good friend. And I said, every time I get in an airplane with you, I'm always flying some over over some ocean. <laughs> and uh, the uh, 
going to the Atlantic with the G3, uh, there was just enough fuel to make it on the right day. Uh, Get to Shannon or something? Well, yeah, right. There was just enough fuel. So that uh, I used to say I'm pretending to be an airline pilot. Well, we fly with, you know, airline passengers, if they only knew how, how – how little fuel you guys are flying with most of the time. Yeah. And, but that's, uh, by design and not by necessity. Uh, whereas the G3 was necessity. We'd fill it up and it was just enough to get to Heathrow yeah. or just enough to get to Paris. And, uh, then coming back, we'd have to stop in Keflavik and get fuel because you're pushing headwinds. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, G5, we had an old saying and that is, if you have to stop for fuel in a G5, and you remember this, 550 or G5, if you have to stop for fuel, you went the wrong way around the world. Yeah. Well, you go the other way. That's right. So, <laughs> Catch some tailwinds. That's right. So that was uh, that, that made life easy. Going across oceans in the G5 made life a lot easier. Oh, it's so much easier. You just have less to think about. You know, a lot less to think about. God, well, even uh, if you have close to a full right. bag of fuel, you're going to make it. You're going to make it to... 45,000 feet, no problem. You can That's be above right. the North Atlantic high-level airspace. That's right. You're, uh, you're above the tracks. You're, you're above the tracks. Right. You can random weird. route it across. Yeah. Right. And uh, I, I have so much respect for airline people because uh, you, you, every time you fly, uh, you have just enough fuel to get there, and then when you land, you have reserve. That's it. Yeah. Now, that means that if you have a problem, you have two problems. You have the problem that you have, and now you don't have enough time to solve the problem because you don't have any gas. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> oh, that is a great saying. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> a couple fun facts about the Gulfstream 4. This is for the benefit of our, our listeners. Uh, mm -hmm. The first is that the G4 in 1987, it became the very first business jet with a full glass cockpit, which just means yes. that all in instrumentation required for flight is presented on little cathode ray tube screens rather mm -hmm. than conventional dials and gauges that we're all used to. Yeah. And the other fun fact is that the primary flight display units, which is display unit one and six. So if you're like looking in the cockpit over on the far left-hand side, the far right-hand side, they animated the airspeed tape backwards. Yes. Faster speeds roll from the bottom of the screen to the top right. in the G4 and it's backwards compared to all other and electronic flight instruments. G3 was the same. It was the same, it was the same logic. Right. So that, I, you know, I would find you, myself flying G2, G3, G5, and the speed tapes go in the opposite direction yeah. in, a, in the G5. And, and, uh, it wigs you out yeah, yeah, it does. when you make that transition. Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> it, uh, yep. yeah, especially if you just flown a long trip in one, one display and then you turn around and... Yeah. See this thing going the wrong way, the other way. So. Yeah, and you spend enough time in the air, and you get a little delirious. Like, what's yes. what's going on right now? Yeah. Though, so the whole thing is that the uh, the logic of it was tied to to pitch for a faster speed. You point the nose down, so right. the speeds that are faster should be below. They right. should come from the bottom. Mm -hmm. That was their method. And then the G five, yeah, they switched it yeah, back to what everybody right. else was right. doing. So higher, higher is higher. Lower yep. is lower. Lower is lower. Yeah. Right, and that's that's more in line with uh, how. And that's more in line with uh, industrial psychology and how the human being thinks. Yep. As a matter of fact, if you, the, the way industrial psychologists uh, come to conclusions for things like that is you'll give a hundred people a piece of paper and say, I want you to draw uh, an airspeed tape for me. 
where and put in the highest and put in the lowest. Eighty percent will put the highest on top and the, and the lowest on the bottom, and so that's where that stuff comes from. Right. You ever do any airline flying? Um, here's my airline experience. In 1993, I went to work for Natco, and it was Northwest Aerospace Training Corporation. Uh, Academy. In those days, in the 1990s, actually in the 1980s and 90s, every airline had an idea post deregulation that we're going to turn our training center from a cost to a profit center. And so they started renting out their simulators. And Northwest did this by starting an organization called NATCO, Northwest Aerospace Training Corporation. And, uh, so in that, we trained airlines that didn't have simulators from all over the world. And uh, I had a very interesting experience there, a uh, good job there. It was on top of all of my other jobs. So I, I, didn't, I never quit any other jobs. I wasn't working as a corporate pilot at the time, but I was still teaching college. And I still had a flight school, and I worked there too. But... Uh, the airline experience was training others uh, and writing training programs for other airlines. In those days, there was no such thing as Regulation 142. So we worked on... Which says? Which is a flight school for large airplanes. And, uh, and, and that's the way it is today. But prior to that, you worked under what we called an exemption, and it was an exemption under FAR 121 that uh, allowed a, a simulator school to be a simulator school and teach without teaching in airplanes. And uh, so that's what we did. And we had customers and, and uh, uh, airlines from all over the world, and uh, I wrote training programs for those and taught each, in those. For each was, customer? Yes. For, uh, for several customers. And uh, strangely, um, I was uh, instructor in the Airbus, the A320 uh, at NATCO, and an examiner in A320. Okay. And, uh, uh, and, but then we'd train people from other countries uh, which was always a confusing thing because you'd end up having to get these guys flight tested on certification that was from some other country, and that was always a challenge. Yeah. Uh, for example, Canada, we had Ministry of Transport examiners come down and sit in the simulator to certify the Canadian pilots. And, uh, and uh, the interesting thing is in the case of Syria, Syrian Airlines, uh, I went. I ended up working for them, and here's this is this is how that happened. Uh, they were a 747 SP operator, and if you look at a 747, it's a short, stubby uh, airplane. The 747 SP is called Special Performance. Yep, just like the Gulfstream. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, they just rather than putting a plug in the fuselage to make it bigger. It took a plug out and made it littler. Take, make a 747 littler. Well, yeah, yeah. To this day, I think they still have those. Well, but the idea it, being more range. Yeah, uh, more range. Uh, right, fewer people, more range. Yeah. 
and uh, but Syria doesn't have any aviation. The only aviation they had was in those days. I don't know what what they have now. But in those days, they had uh, just the airline, and there was no airline certificates. They had a letter. If you were an airline pilot, you had a letter. And every pilot had flown three airplanes. They came to the United States and got a private commercial instrument. Okay. So they'd flown a Cessna 150, a Cessna 172, and a Boeing 747. That was all that was ever in their logbooks. What a juxtaposition. Right. And uh, <laughs> um, and so at one point, uh, their director of operations and the management of Syrian Airlines, a man named Omar Oswani, who had a heart attack and died in the 1990s, but his mandate was everyone has to have a pilot certificate. And because they were training in the United States and the United Kingdom and Russia, they said, as long as you get a U.S. pilot certificate or a Canadian pilot or a, a United Kingdom pilot certificate, pilot license, or a U.S. pilot certificate, that's fine. But you have to get a pilot certificate somehow, some way. So From some Western entity or another. Right. Some <laughs> Western entity or another in case of Russia, it was Eastern. Yeah. Um, well, the ones that were, uh, the people that were here at the time, they said, we've got an idea. Uh, our, our, our idea first was, we'll send each pilot through a 747 initial school. Well, they didn't want to do that because of the cost. And the exemption read, if you're going to give a type rating and a pilot certificate, an airline transport certificate, you have to do it by taking the person through the entire curriculum. And that's the same as 142 is today. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't just give them an ATP check ride. Um, yep. They have to walk through the whole right. you have program. To do the whole thing. Yep. You have to do the whole deal. And they said, well, we're not going to go through the expense of that. Uh, and then uh, the other management person said, we have an idea. Addis, he owns a flight school. They've already flown Cessnas way back in their history. Yeah. We'll put them through uh, ATP training in a Cessna 172. And they said, yeah, that's fine. That'll do it. Okay, so then we took every pilot. I love pilot, this workaround. <laughs> right. We took every pilot and took them through um, an ATP training, airplane, single engine land. I flight tested all of them one at a time, going back to Cessna 172s. Um, and uh, halfway through it, the Syrian Airlines said, well, the guy doing all of this examining for the certification, uh, he's then a Czech airman for us. Yes, okay, well, he has to be an employee. So they made me, Syrian Airlines made me an employee. And, Check the box. Right, yes. Yep. So uh, when 9-11 happened, you can imagine uh, the the conversation the FBI had with me. You yeah. work for Syrian Airlines. Yes. Yeah. What do you do? I don't, well, I do this and that. Do you have any records? Yes, I do. Well, we're going to take all your records. To this day, they've never returned the records. Hey, FBI, if you're listening, uh, Brian Hass wants those back. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, oh, my land. But, that is, uh, that's something. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was kind of an interesting background. But the interesting thing about that is, there's an FBI office in Minneapolis that didn't know anything about this because we did all of our communicating with the FAA office or the FBI office, not FAA, but FBI office yeah. in New York and with the consulate in New York and uh, 
uh, I got to know those people pretty well. Um, but the Minneapolis office had nothing to do with it. And I don't know why it went through the New York office. But these two offices didn't talk to each other. That's, I feel like that's pretty common with uh, that, with, with federal agencies, isn't it? precipitated a change. Uh, and 9-11 precipitated a change where they started talking with each yeah, other. Yeah, because a lot of people yeah, didn't share information. information. All, we're all competing for taxpayer yeah. dollars to boost our, uh, exactly. you know, so, our capacity to do our jobs. Yeah. Because uh, while Syria was our customer and a good customer and a bunch of wonderful guys, mm-hmm. uh, Politically, Syria is not our friends as the right. United States, but uh, that's okay. We do work with a lot of people who aren't our friends. Yeah. So. All right. So now we know a little bit about your flight experience, mm-hmm. your backstory, and we really only touched on what you've accomplished in life. So we're going to explore that topic just a little bit more. Sure. And I'm going to ask you some very pointed questions mm-hmm. about what you learned through all the ups and the downs. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. um, out of all the things that you could have done earlier in your career, why did you purchase a flight school? And remind us what year it was that you bought wings. Yeah, the uh, uh, it, it, this goes back to uh, what do I want to do? Wh- where, where do you want your dedication? And a lot of this is, comes from my experience in Vietnam. I was an infantry soldier, and I lived through it where— I went to Vietnam with 10 guys, 11 of us. Only one came home, me. And I thought, I, I, now I have, to, I have to do something in life that's other than just making a living. So I want to uh, work in something. So, yep. uh, and that's how this whole concept of education came about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. So um, w- once I decided on education, it was aviation education, um, uh, that led me to this whole thing where I just lived in that world. And uh, when the flight school came uh, open for sale, uh, uh, we picked up on it. Then, in those days, if you went to college, uh, if you wanted to be an airline pilot, you went to college studying something, political science, art history, or whatever else you wanted, and you learned how to fly. Uh, there were very few colleges in the United States in the 1970s that had aviation programs, very few. I went to Inver Hills Community College in the late 70s, uh, actually 76, 77, and uh, I wrote a curriculum for flight training, and they promptly threw me out and uh, went home, revised it, Came back a year later, and they threw me out again. Came back a year later, and it happened to be the timing was, uh, from the college's points of view, it was, let's get involved with with educational uh, programs with industry. And so then they were receptive, but I knew nothing about developing curricula uh, yeah, it's... and but they the people in the college did, and my my okay. my boss at the time she did, and she was very good and helpful. Yep. Uh, and uh, so not only did we start three programs in 1980 at Inver Hills Community College, aviation business, professional pilot, and air traffic control, we ran them for 30 years, and uh, and then of course. Uh, uh, there were five or six other 
aviation programs in the United States, in the state of Minnesota at the time. And when the crash of the 2000, I'll call it 2006, 7, 8, happened, all the programs closed except one. And uh, my program was one to close. So Yep. So, so going back to when you purchased Wings, mm-hmm. was that a terribly difficult process or was it straightforward? It was from actually a transactional actually standpoint. Pretty, it was pretty simple because the previous owners didn't want to be in the business anymore. And I was a kid, I had no money, and my partner had no money. Yeah. And we said, we'll, 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 uh, we'll buy it, but we have no money, so we'll do it on an earnout. We'll pay you so much money every year. And we did that, and we paid it off that way. So Very good, very good. Mm-hmm. So uh, for many years, Wings was very successful with you as mm-hmm. the owner. Yes. And to what do you attribute the success of Wings? Well, uh, a lot of it was timing. Just the time was right for airline hiring, and that was in the... Demand was right. Right. You have to remember that from 1970 to 1980, if you wanted a job in aviation, you had to make one. There were very few jobs of any kind. Yeah. Actually, any kind. And then from 1980 forward, 1980 to 1990, things changed, and the regional airlines started, and employment worked out pretty well. And through 1990s, we were riding the crest. It was wonderful. Yeah. Um, it, uh, so was Wings already successful before you it, bought it? Or was it? No, it was four airplanes, five airplanes. Yeah. It was, it was uh, rather like in-flight was. Yep. A few airplanes. And then, of course, we just kept expanding. And then the college program, uh, when we, in those days, we had an average of 150 students in the college at any given time and 150 students at the flight school at any given time. By the time we closed in 2007, we had 15 college students and 15 aviation students. Yeah, so not only, like did I have to, of... right, not only did I have to close my flight school, but my college said, well, we're going to close your program. Yep. So you have two choices. You can either retire or we can fire you. <laughs> so I Which I'll, package did you I'll take? I'll take the retirement. <laughs> so, Smart. Right. Uh, during this time, did, did you um, have any other business experience to lean on? Um, actually, no. no. Uh, uh, the only other business experience I had was my brother and I uh, had properties in Colorado. He lived in Colorado. I lived here. We had a business together. Okay. But that struggled along until about 2011 or 12. And then ultimately, Wings Incorporated, it failed as a business it due did. to demand right. for flight training in the 90s. Demand for flight training crashed. Basically, and, yep. uh, and if you if you take a look at, at what happened in those days, it was a simple signature that happened to everyone. I mean, 300 flight schools went out of business in a three-year period. Uh, all the major airlines in the United States filed bankruptcy except one. They all got rid of all their pilots and said, if you want the job back, you come on back, but it's no retirement and half the pay. That was generally the consensus. Yep. Um, the only one that didn't file, I think, at the time was American. Uh, but all the other airlines did file. It was a way to get out of labor problems. But, yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, so I saw something then that I'd never seen before, and that is at the time, 
there was still plenty of jobs. But people walked away. They didn't want the jobs. And uh, the psychology side of me got interested in that question. And why would people walk away when there's, when there's jobs, even though they pay half of what they used to pay? There's still jobs in aviation. Um, and it, it told me something about how, how men think. And in those days, women represented 4% of the pilot group. To this day, women represent 4% of the pilot group. It yep. hasn't changed very much. And uh, most women that I've talked to that were interested in flying have said, I just don't want to go through the, the hassle of having to fight the minority battle. Uh, I'd like to fly, but it's just too difficult to, to fight the minority battle. So uh, in any case, um, what had uh, occurred in all that was uh, people uh, would walk away. In other words, the students would leave. They'd say, I'm not going to be a pilot anymore. Um, I, I don't want any part of this. Uh, so if you think of it in terms of, uh, in terms of a, a man's uh, industry, which 96% of it was, before they would live their lives uh, sacrificing not being able to uh, be at all their children's events, um, gr growing up events, birthdays, parties, and so forth. Yeah, the major milestones major that we milestones, all look forward to. Right, that everyone looks forward to. Um, because at the end of it, there was money and there was retirement money. But when you told these people, now there isn't money anymore and there isn't any retirement anymore, they walked and said, I'll do something else for a living. Right. And uh, so in 2006, uh, five, six, seven, and 8, by the end of that, and being an examiner, I knew the numbers. We were making, the United States was making, prior to this, 3,000 pilots, commercial pilots a month. 3,000 a month. It went from making 3,000 a month down to 300 a month. And that includes all the foreign nationals that were getting commercial pilot certificates for other places. Yeah, to go elsewhere. Right. And that went on from 2007, actually 2006, to about 2015. Well, that created an eight-year uh, deficit or an eight-year hole. So now, you, after that, what you have is an airline industry that emerges and it's making money again, and it's doing a good job again, and now it needs labor, and it's willing to pay. And even the regional airlines, where they started $20,000 before, now are starting in the 70s. Yep. Um, uh, so we have this deficit, and that's what we're in right now, is we're in this, this program where we lost a bunch of pilots because we just didn't make pilots for eight years. Yeah. Complicate that with one additional factor, and that is COVID. When COVID came in, there was a huge dip in travel for a year, maybe a year and a half, maybe two years. Yep. And uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, subsidized the airlines to get through this, providing the airlines would do cost-cutting measures. Well, what does airlines do? And they do this every time, but it, is, it isn't a criticism because they have to do it. They got rid of the most expensive labor. Well, what's the most expensive labor? The senior people. Yep. Well, people they bought, been around long. Bought out. Goodbye. 
here's retirement early, and we'll give you money and make you go away. Um, so, so that further adds to this void of not enough labor once the airline industry came back, and that's where we are right now. Yeah. Now, how long will this last? Well, economists say if you have a void for eight years, it'll take you 16 to get back, double it. Yep. And uh, I don't know, I'm not an economist, so I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I do know that uh, that we're still riding the crest in terms of, of uh, uh, pilots and the need for pilots. The only thing that scares me a little bit is uh, in transport category airplanes is to have a day when you have a junior captain and a junior co-pilot and you have a big problem. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm just concerned about that day. Yep. Uh, an example of this is, and this, this is something we don't teach very much in, in, uh, in uh, flight training, uh, large airplanes or small airplanes. But uh, I was coming out of Miami with a Gulfstream, um, G2 or G3, I've forgotten. Miami to New York, I think. I don't remember, but it's been a while. Um, and I had a new contract co-pilot with me. And uh, in Florida, uh, thunderstorms cook up everywhere. So you're turning left, turning right, getting around these Quickly things. Quickly, Trying too. to get over them, <laughs> get around um, and I happen to, and I'm a look. I'm a, a person who looks at air sphere, looks at outside air temperature, especially in, in high altitude jets. And I happen to look at the airspeed indicator and watch it go all the way down to or up to minus 25 at 41,000 feet. Now, um, for those who fly, you know that if you're at at uh, uh, 41,000 feet, that thing better be reading about minus 60 yes. or, or colder, uh, or you're going to be in trouble. Yep. Uh, and so I called the controller and I said, I, we can't stay here anymore. I have to either go east or uh, go west uh, or down. He said, I can't let you go down. We got too, too much traffic. And you know how Florida is. It's busy, busy. Yeah, there's traffic everywhere. <laughs> you can't go anywhere. I said, I'm, I'm going 090 right now. I, yeah, you do what you need to do, but this is what I'm doing. Right. One of those situations. And, I'm thinking, and the co-pilot is baffled by this because he doesn't understand the concept of why this this temperature is that important. And I'm saying things like, this airplane's going to fall out of the sky. Yeah, he doesn't understand the idea of severe icing. Right, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm worried about that kind of thing in, in, uh, in coupling up low-experienced people. So Yeah. No, I, that's uh, that is something that I think about myself quite a bit as well, mm -hmm. um, because you, you're going to run into those situations just due to the labor shortage. Right. You're going to have somebody in the left seat who yeah. is not as experienced as maybe they would have been in the 90s yeah. or, or times earlier, and somebody in the right seat who's even got less experience. That's right. And exactly. Yeah. So. It, it is something to... To keep an eye on and, and, to be, to worry about. and for us to worry about and as an industry right. be thinking about. How can we solve it? How can we preclude uh, events like this from right. from having a drastic If you, if drastic you think about it, I think the answer is, is uh, uh, my old friend John Odegaard, if he can't have experience, then get uh, education yes. or training. Yep. So... Um, and that was a smart, uh, very smart uh, statement. So going 
back just a, a little bit in our conversation. Mm-hmm. I did want to ask you, um, with with wings closing down, mm-hmm. what were the first warning signs to you um, that that well, led you to believe that something something is were happening? The airline, and airlines this, going bankrupt. Yeah, as the airlines mean, going bankrupt because okay. we were so linked to airline hiring. Right. Uh, that's what we did. We made airline pilots, and uh, so those are the first kind of tremors. Yeah, and I knew that uh, if, if that happens, we're done. Yeah. So, okay. It has to be some miracle that happens, and the miracle never happened. Yeah. So three hundred and some flight schools went out during those days. Right. Well, yours is a story of resilience, Brian. At least that's how I see it from the outside looking in. Well, uh, it takes a lot of grit to build a business and let alone watch it crumble due to circumstances right. beyond your control. Uh, I can't imagine what the pain of experiencing something like that must have felt like. Well, it's uh, it's like anything. It's, uh, um, it isn't so much uh, the tragedy of loss. It is rather, what will I do now? How can I how can I fix this? How can I recover from this? And of course, you're leaving a company and leaving myself in bankruptcy. Yeah, um, at 61 years old. At right, at 61 years old. What's lost, going through your head? Lost, well, I lost three million dollars. I have yeah, nothing. I have exactly, nothing. nothing. Now I have to start over. At in, 61. At 61, and I did start over. And uh, while I'm not wealthy, I'm okay. Uh, yeah, you'll survive. Right. Yeah, I'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yep. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. but you have to keep going. You just have to. But every every story of of uh, of difficulty, uh, be it known that there's always somebody else that has a story that's more difficult than yours. Sure. Yeah, and that's what keeps you going. Yeah, I, I think that's important perspective. Right, is that mm-hmm. uh, yeah, despite the the worst things happening to yeah, you, despite there the is, bad things, right. there is and there are people that have and it worse. If you want to be in aviation, there's no way. You're going to get through a career of 30, 40, 50 years uh, without a bump. That's right. It's, That's very important have, perspective. You're going to have some kind of a bump someplace. There's going to be a speed bump. And look at where you are today, the Minnesota Aviation Hall of Famer. <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually in attendance on the evening of your induction ceremony yes. back in 2019. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that stood out for me from that evening, it really struck a chord. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, other than the speech that you gave, mm-hmm. um, it was the reaction that your speech received from your peers. I haven't heard applause and cheering so thunderous, even at U.S. Bank Stadium. Uh, it became clear to me just how meaningful that you are to so many within our community. It was in that instance. It was very humbling. It was, yeah, it's a core memory in my brain. It was very humbling. Yes. <laughs> do you remember that evening very well? I do, yes. You do? Uh, it would be one of those things that you don't forget ever. Exactly, yep. Mm-hmm. So who was it that first told you, who approached you and said that you were selected for the honor of becoming a Minnesota Aviation Hall of Famer. Uh, Rich, uh, uh, Len Christensen and Mary Alverson. Had Mary Alverson. I remember Mary was there. Right. They had done the work to indoctrinate or to induct me. Very that. good. And Sherry Rolfing was actually the person that said you're going to be inducted. So. So for this last portion of our conversation, we're going to wrap this thing up. Sure. Uh, let's talk about Brian Addis, the designated pilot examiner. Sure. We'll try our best to tie in some more elements of your background in psychology to how we, to how you approach the topic of testing and education, which mm-hmm. should be interesting. Sure. Um, so when did you first become a DPE for the FAA again? What year was that? 1978. It's actually 70, yeah, 78. Okay. And 
did the FAA approach you for that opportunity? They or did. did and uh, I said, I, I, I'm too busy running the new flight school. Can I have my chief pilot do this? And they said, no, you're it. Uh, we need another examiner here because John Lindbergh is gone. He was the examiner there at St. Paul. Yep. And uh, so you're it, buddy. That's it. You've been chosen. So, right, yeah. <laughs> and so get used to it. You're it. Yeah. So. And, they, and they just probably saw all of the experience and educational background that you had as your, your kind of fit well, the bill? Or I, what? I, I was a 135 Czech airman at the time. And uh, so they knew me. Yeah. And they thought, yeah, he, you've been in and around. You've right, seen faces yeah. and shook hands and all. Yeah. That. Okay, gotcha. And 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 they they knew my record as a one thirty five check airman, so they thought this would be an easy transition. So. Yeah, excellent. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, what do you remember about your first ten check rides? Was it an awkward transition for you, or do you think you took to it well? Uh, I know it was an awkward transition. It was uh, uh, one of detail, one of profound responsibility it is a profound responsibility but uh i learned something immediately and that is the only way that you can get to know what someone knows or what someone could do is to make sure that they are in as relaxed a position as possible and if they're not you can't get to know what they know and you can't get to see what they can do and uh, so uh, I've made it a, a, a special effort throughout my career to make sure that people are at some kind of ease during the, this test process. And the FAA makes a point of that as well, even in, uh, even in their training, initial training and recurrent training. Yeah. Put the applicant at ease, put the applicant at ease, put the applicant at ease. Um, yeah, it's hard enough to perform, let alone under right. tremendous pressure. <laughs> the, the, the antithesis or the opposing philosophy of that is uh, some examples will say, well, if they can't do this under pressure, then they can't do the next thing. Well, yes, but uh, the psychology part of me says that's a different kind of pressure. It's yeah. not the same kind of pressure. Um, so I, I still uh, come away with being a DP with uh, the gratitude in knowing that I made a decision that was correct, and that is make sure people are comfortable. Yeah. You can't, you can't change the standards. Nope. The standards are the standards, yep. but you can make sure that they are doing the best they can yeah. through whatever f- emotional comfort they can yeah. they can muster at the time. Listen, I'm here to see that you can perform to the standard. I'm not out to get you. Right. Yep. You know, this mm-hmm. is, you know, you- you just yeah. got to do the thing that you've trained to do, and that's you right. will be able to do it. Yeah. You know, it's going to be okay. Yeah, exactly. yeah. That's uh, that's something that I get the sense of um, in having taken a few check rides with you myself. Mm-hmm. Um, can we explore that idea though of pressure, like the difference between testing pressure and mm-hmm. situational pressure that arises right. uh, in day to day activities? Situational on, in the pressure. Deck? Situational pressure is you're in control. Uh, uh-huh. Testing pressure. You don't feel like you're in control. You feel like somebody else is in yes. control. Yes, gotcha. Okay. And were there any other elements of educational psychology that you employed during the, your average test that you can think of that stand out in your mind? One, Other than just like the I, making yeah, people one comfortable. One that I have to work on myself a great deal is uh, uh, discipline myself to be a good listener. Ah. Be a good listener. Listen to what the applicant is saying. Listen to what the body language is saying. Um, what is this person telling me? Uh, 
consciously and unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, so nobody likes to experience failure, but nope. you know, like we kind of talked about earlier, it's going to happen mm-hmm. to us at one point or another. Yeah, we're going to experience bumps. Um, mm-hmm. On average, what were some of the common mistakes you might have seen during oral and practical exams that led to disapprovals and retesting? Uh, common mistakes, uh, they're all over the board. Um, nowadays, in, uh, and I, let's, let's put it into to, to nowadays for people who are working on commercial pilot certificates. Yeah. The number one failure item on a commercial pilot certificate is that power off 180. Well, why is that now? Because the old practical test standard said that a power off 180, as long as you land in the first one third of the runway, you're good. So if you had a 3,000 foot runway, you get a thousand feet. Yep. And now the new ACS says you have to hit a spot and 200 feet be or 200 a spot or 200 feet beyond the spot. Nothing before. Yeah. And it's not easy. As a matter of fact, in light, in light airplanes to this very day, I try those at least a half a dozen times a year, and I only make half of them. Yeah. Doing it myself. Especially in high wing airplanes, right. I think yes. it's a bit more predictable in something like a uh, Piper Arrow with the T tail configuration. Because once you drop the gear, it's very predictable. It's going down. It's going down like a <laughs> yeah, brick. Yeah, you just right? point it at the uh, the bricks and but, put it on them. <laughs> right, but it's uh, you have to know which way the wind is blowing and yep. where it's coming from. And, right, right. Uh, Energy management. Uh, and for so far as instrument ratings, that has never changed. It's always been number one thing is holding patterns. Um, holding pattern entries. Yeah, yes, the ability to get into uh, a holding pattern. Yeah. Um, and to this day, we every pilot struggle with that at primary levels and advanced levels. And the nice thing is nowadays the automation saves us from ourselves. Yeah. By telling us, okay, just press these buttons, I'll tell you how to do a holding pattern. So, Which I think is one of, it's one of those elements that leads to what we had talked about before with lack of experience if mm-hmm. you don't really know how to do the actual thing without right. help right and I, now <laughs> uh, for every airline passenger uh please appreciate what the pilot is saying when they come on the when they come on the air and say uh we have to hold we can't get into detroit right now because the weather's bad uh and we can do one turn maybe a turn and a half and then we're gonna have to go someplace else go to milwaukee or someplace yep. else. Um, and uh, so what they're doing is solving two problems at once. One, delay. Two, they don't have any gas. Right. So <laughs> goes back to there's more than one problem now. There's more than one problem. <laughs> yep. Right? Uh, showing up prepared on test day is mm-hmm. important. Having yes. reference materials, training aids, uh, yep. and the proper endorsement, that gets the ball rolling nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were some other things you noticed in pilot applicants that indicated they were well-prepared well before um, the test even yeah, began? Yeah, well-prepared is uh, just organized, and do you have, uh, uh, do you have your, do you, do you know your airplane? Do you know your own logbook? Uh, do you know what, what test you're here for? Do you know the ACS? Um, yeah, just preparation. Yeah, I like the knowing what test you're here for. Right, <laughs> I'm here for my private, right? Well, it's uh, an example. No, this is actually an instrument. example <laughs> of flight instructor tests. Um, often this is how the conversation went. What are we here for today? What are we doing today? I'm doing my MEI. What does that mean? <laughs> They're doing a, 
I think what you're saying is you're applying for a flight instructor certificate, airplane multi-engine. Is that correct? Yes. Um, are you applying to be a certifying official under Title 14? Uh, no. Um, okay, why are you here? I'm doing a flight instructor test. Okay, do you know what that is? Yeah. Um, are you applying to be a certifying official to be under Title 14? No. Look at your logbook. What are the first two words in every endorsement? First two words are, I certify. I certify. I certify. Okay? So you're applying to be a certifying official under Title 14. That's a big responsibility. Yep. You're going to say things. A lot of legal weight. <laughs> right. You're going to say things that people are going to remember for the rest of their lives. So is that what you're here for today? Yes, I guess I am. <laughs> so... <laughs> Oh, that is a classic exchange. I love that. <laughs> um, what did you like most about being a DPE? Uh, I think the the responsibility of it. The FAA said, you can do this, you're responsible, we have faith in you. Very good. What did you like least about it? Same, the responsibility. Ah. <laughs> classic. What do they call that? A catch-22? Uh, yeah. Catch-22. Catch-22. <laughs> right. What are some unexpected things that you learned over the years of administering check rides? Things that you maybe wouldn't have guessed you would have learned. Um, for for my my own my own mistakes, every mistake that I made, uh, and you can't get through any career without making mistakes. But how do I solve and correct mistakes? It all points back to one thing, and that is uh, be a little more methodical and slow down. Okay. So. All right. I promise we are we're about to wrap this thing up. Yes, <laughs> but before no I left you, let you off the hook here, um, I wanted to get your opinion on just a few things. Sure. Uh, first, mm -hmm. what is the most important character quality of a professional aviator? I think uh, to, to be a person that uh, uh, it's a people business. So uh, you have to be a person who uh, shows uh, cooperation with the person you're dealing with. So if I had to wrap it up in one word, cooperation. Cooperation. I think that is absolutely excellent. What approach should individuals who are right-brained thinkers take to successfully navigate their way into a career as a pilot? Do you have any insights or opinions on that? Because right-brained thinkers are, tend to be like the artistic types, the more like I see things in broad strokes as opposed mm -hmm. to the left lane brain thinkers who are very linear. And if you, if you take a look at it and you find out, has anyone done any testing on this, on this very subject, you find out, yes, who, ha who has? Well, who has money to test that kind of thing? The United States Air Force. Hey. And they have. And they find out that when you're flying a plane, the whole right hemisphere is lit up like a Christmas tree. So it isn't so much the linear uh, logical part of the brain. Uh, it is the the creative part that's more at work than anything. But you have to remember the the human brain is connected by a bundle of nerve fibers, two hundred fifty million nerve fibers called the corpus callosum. And so, whether you think you're right brain or left brain, these two hemispheres are talking to each other all the time. Yep. So, yep. Yeah, that uh, that is that's very interesting because I always 
I'm, I'd say I'm a bit more of a right brain type person, but there are elements where I can be very lin, uh, linear in my thinking yeah. and logical. So that's just something that uh, there were there were aspects that I struggled with as I've made my way forward in the career. So I'm I'm glad for your insight on that because I know there are people who are maybe even more right brained. <laughs> Than, well, uh, than yeah, the the uh, the uh, and the way psychology looks at it is they de-emphasize the significance of of the responsibility of each hemisphere, and emphasize uh, the responsibility of the communications of these two hemispheres and how how they they uh, work together. Yeah. And if you want to read some uh, interesting uh, studies. Uh, look at the studies on people who have had the hemispheres severed. And that is, uh, in the 1970s, people with intractable epilepsy, one of the, one of the ways to cure these people that were going to die anyway was to sever this group, bunch of nerve fibers between the two hemispheres, just cut them off. So each hemisphere would function, uh, uh individually. And, uh, there's very little, uh, at the surface, very little difference until you see how people interact. And then you can put this together and uh, uh, find out that, the, that it's very important for the two hemispheres to interact. Any words of encouragement or advice to offer up incoming pilots who are trying to achieve the dream of flight Dude. on a very limited budget? Do what you want to do. Keep doing it. It's going to cost a lot of money. Get the yeah. money somehow. Get the money somehow. Gotcha. Yeah. A whole lot of lawns. Do whatever you have to do. Because, yeah. yeah, the stuff, it's expensive, and it's only getting more expensive. It's only getting worse, <laughs> and uh, you'll, you're going to have student loans forever. So Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Brian, uh, so many of us, uh, we admire the heck out of you. Whether you like it or not, <laughs> your, your positive influence on the aviation community, uh, it's irrefutable. So yep. thanks for being a dedicated and passionate educator, an example of resilience, and a true friend to the aviation community. And it's people like you that make the world a better place to live. I really believe thank, that. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. So I don't know about you all, but I learned quite a few things from today's discussion with Brian. One of the biggest takeaways from his life story, in my humble opinion, is that resilience can be found within each of us amidst even the most dire of circumstances. It is possible. I mean, here's a guy who worked tirelessly to build his business on top of life's other responsibilities, and he lost everything along the way, and he blamed nobody, not even himself. He just put his nose to the grindstone and kept putting the interests of others above his own, and he moved forward as an educator. It comes down to choices and how to look at and move forward from bad situations. If you can find passion somewhere in your life where you have an opportunity to bring something positive to those around you, I think by all means you should just run after it. We all have opportunities within the aviation industry to affect meaningful change in the lives of others. And we all have unique gifts to offer those around us. You know, whether it's a word of encouragement helping someone complete a task that falls outside of your responsibilities, or even just teaching something new to a colleague. I hope you enjoyed hearing Brian's life story and his many insights ranging from flight experience to psychology and education. I look forward to you joining us in our next episode of Living in Flight. 
this was another episode of Living in Flight. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe for more exclusive aviation content. Have any topic ideas or want to be featured on our podcast? Send us a message at listen at livinginflight.com. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, this is Living in Flight.